AJ Sherrill is here this weekend. He is no stranger to Sanctuary. He pastors Trinity Grace Parish Chelsea in New York City. So before he comes, uh, he asked that we would read the, the scripture for this morning. So if you would stand for the reading of scripture. This comes to us out of Galatians 5. Live by the Spirit, I say, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. For what the flesh desires is opposed to the Spirit, and what the Spirit desires is opposed to the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to prevent you from doing what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not subject to the law. Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. I am warning you, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. By contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. I, um, I, love, I love being here at Sanctuary. I like being at Sanctuary Church in August. I love being at Sanctuary Church in February <laughs> when it's really cold in New York, so wink, wink. Um, such a joy to be back. I had such a great experience the last time I was here. Um, you're good people. And, and by the way, I just have to say, of all the churches I teach in, yours is hands down the finest donut selection in North America. It's fantastic. You don't know what I'm talking about in this service, but come to the 830. It's a shameless plug for you guys. Come to the 830. You'll see a diversity of donuts. And it is really like an eschatological like, future of the kingdom. Like when you just see the diversity of donuts, all donuts welcome. It's just amazing. Um, I'm not sure if uh, the chiropractor Josh Wedman is here, uh, maybe somewhere in the house. I'm not sure. Uh, there, I, I, see, I see his bride. I don't see Josh. But I will say that Josh is a chiropractor here in the community. And uh, the last time I was here, this gentleman gave me a chiropractic adjustment right before my flight that it was almost like he was aligning the vertebrae in my body to move and orient toward the kingdom of God. It was amazing. So there he is. So if, there's, if that's any indication of the talent in this room, praise be to God for Sanctuary Church. Really, really excited to be here. That guy's still clapping. That's amazing. Um, so let's begin today where you most likely did not end last week, and that's with Dr. Oz. Um, like him or leave him, classic smile, beautiful man. Dr. Oz... Uh, I want, I want you to do this as we begin. I want you to imagine hosting Dr. Oz in your home later this evening. That that's the need. He's in Tulsa. You, you got a call. He's in town. He needs somewhere to crash. You're the one. So just imagine that, right? With someone like Dr. Oz and the TV personality that he is and the doctor that he is, what would you be asking him? What would you be preparing in terms of questions to have a conversation? Maybe something like, um, what should I really eat for the long run, right, for my body? Or maybe you'd be asking, is it true that the gallbladder is really superfluous, and what's the point of that? Or maybe you'd be asking questions like, are essential oils really essential? 
Are they really necessary? Or maybe you'd be asking, like, do you ever stop smiling? Do you smile in bed? Is that how you sleep? Like, that sort of permagrant. So, so for a friend of mine, this went from imagination to reality. He hosted Dr. Oz one evening. He was in town in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And a friend of mine received a call to host him at his place. And so late into the evening, he tells me the story of how they begin to get into this conversation. And it's a conversation about what you would expect, neurology, Right? So they begin to talk neurology and how the neural pathways in our brain are by and large, they by and large determine our behavior from one moment to the next. In other words, over the course of time, the more that you participate in a certain way, a certain behavior, a certain thought pattern, it does these sort of like tire tracks in your brain where the synapses can more easily get through in your brain and you move into what's called default response. So the more you engage a particular behavior, the more you will likely repeat that behavior until it eventually becomes a default response. And that is why they say old habits, thank you, Bruce Willis, right? Old habits, character too is like that. Formation is like that. And here's what gets really fascinating. Dr. Oz told him that the neurological pathways we don't use eventually die. That's why we say things often from about our, our great-grandparents or those who are beyond their 80s where we say things like, oh, leave old Hank alone. He's a curmudgeon. That's the way he's always been. That's the way he always will be. In other words, Hank has lived in such a way where his neural pathways have been like sort of finalized in such a way. The tire tracks have been deep for certain behavioral patterns in his life. And so all summer in New York, I've been taking a fresh look at the New Testament notion of the fruit of the Spirit. And if it's okay with you, I'd like to talk about one of the fruit in particular, and that is the fruit of patience. And to use Dr. Oz's logic, my thesis this morning is this. We have been so deeply formed, our neurological pathways have been so deeply sort of galvanized by our society of immediacy that patience has become a rare commodity in our time. A society of immediacy has created a disposition toward life that does not open itself up to this particular fruit of the Spirit of God. And so my thesis is that unless we seek counterformation from the ways in which our culture has and is forming us, the pathway to patience will die. It will not expand, it will shrink, and we will end up as curmudgeons into our 90s if we're blessed to live that long, and it will be, oh, that's the way Janice will always be, right? <laughs> so here's what's at stake for us this morning. It's becoming like God. That's what's always been at stake. That was the Genesis 3 mishap, is this sort of forfeiture of living into what we were designed to be. And so the fruit of the Spirit, I want us to understand they're not these sort of like Greek arbitrary virtues, the virtuous ethic, the, the sort of list on the wall that if I get around to it, that would be nice, that they're not, arbitrary, they're not arbitrary virtues. They're attributes of God that we were designed to bear in order to be like him. Does that make sense? So it sort of reframes this conversation as this sort of list on a wall that we can sort of aspire to, to a certain way in which God wants us to cooperate in our alignment with the kingdom of God and orientation to where we can begin to take up our original task of what it means to be human, which is also what it means to be like God, to what it is to be divine at the same time. 
a beautiful, beautiful thing that God is inviting us into. Now, here's the thing. I'm aware, and here's the tension this morning. I'm aware that so few of you struggle with patience, right? I'm, I'm totally aware and just want to let you know that being inconvenienced at the DMV, I realize has like no impact on your attitude at all, right? I'm aware that being, you know, in traffic has no impact on you. I'm also aware that you actually enjoy being put on hold by Verizon. Like, I'm totally aware of these things. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to take the next three seconds, and I want you to turn to the person to your right. Go ahead. I'll pause. And I want you to whisper this phrase. I'm glad you're here, because this message is for you. Right? So pay attention. So... So before we get any further into this, let's just sort of back out a little bit. Let's have an agreement on what we're talking about when we talk about the fruit of the Spirit. I'm aware that many of us come from different traditions, different understandings, different perspectives and philosophies toward life. Here's what I would suggest if we were to have a working definition of agreement when it comes to the fruit of the Spirit and what that even is, it would be this. The fruit of the Spirit are outer signs of abundance cultivated by an inner life with God. The fruit of the Spirit are outer signs of abundance, cultivated by an inner life with God. Now, I love this word cultivated, and I used it intentionally because what it shows, and this is where it's so different from society and how we sort of try to achieve things on the outside, degrees, uh, raises, uh, all these other things which aren't bad in themselves, but the spiritual dynamic is so different because what we see, the directional thrust of the fruit of the Spirit isn't performing and achieving and striving to get that, to get love, to get joy, to get kindness, to get faithfulness, to get self-control, but it starts within that the thrust isn't outward coming in, but inward moving out. And I love the agricultural language of the New Testament because it's an affront to what we're baptized in since we're born, a post-industrial mindset that achieves, that performs, that manufactures its future, that clings to control, that clings to sort of moving beyond and self-sufficiency and gaining through merit a very different thing that Paul is inviting us to. This word cultivate, it's actually derived from the term culture. And in Latin, this word colera, it actually means to till your garden. So you can understand why, especially when I I preach this stuff in New York, it's so distant where they think farming is like herbs on your rooftop, right? That's like the mentality there. But even, even in places like Oklahoma, we've become distant from the agricultural mindset, distant from the field, distant from livestock. And so sometimes to reclaim the agricultural metaphor, it actually opens up some things to us that aren't privy in the culture that we live in all the time. So what I think Paul wants to do is this. I think Paul wants to open up a conversation in the church about the culture that's being created within every heart of a Christian. I think that's what he's saying to the church in Galatia is saying, how is the garden of your soul being tilled? How are you creating a culture? How are you cultivating life? Because that has everything to do with whether you're becoming like God or whether you're not. Now, let me just be as clear as possible. When Paul speaks to this church in Galatians 5 about being in Christ, he predominantly isn't talking about saying a prayer to go to heaven. 
That's predominantly not what he's referring to, although he's not against that. But he is speaking about cultivating the soil of your soul that reveals heaven on earth. Does that make sense? So his, his ardent cry here isn't to sort of like get everything right so that you can leave someday in the future. His ardent cry is begin to move in this way and cultivate this life so that you can reveal the future in the present. That that is the longing for the church in this time. But here's the deal. In stark contrast to how we get things done in the marketplace, spiritual fruit is not about a willful intent. It's about a prayerful consent. Does that make sense? What I mean by that is we don't make fruit happen in our lives. We give God surrendered permission to happen through our lives. And that's a very different orientation. It's a very different thrust than the way in which most of us have seen the spiritual life that kind of gets assimilated into how we do everything else in life by merit and performance and achievement. God is saying the paradigm in which the kingdom moves in your life is actually counterintuitive. It actually begins in the inside. It actually begins on waiting and surrender and consent rather than drive and achievement and intent. Are you with me? Are we together? Yes. Questions to consider as we move forward briefly this morning. Among your characteristics, so you have IQ, you have EQ. Let's just say there's a such thing called PQ. There is now. We'll call it the patient quotient, right? Among all of the lists of things in your life, where would those closest to you rank patience in your life? Would that be anywhere near the top five of sort of virtues that people would use to describe you? Another question that I think is really interesting is, what does patience in Galatians 5 really mean? And is that the same patience in which I think it means, in which I've grown up in with an understanding of patience? What is Paul really after here? And the third thing is, how do I become more patient in a society full of noise, disruption, and annoyances. So let's begin by taking a little inventory of our own lives, and let's sort of put a litmus test to how patient you really are. And let's call this patience by city, right? Anyone from Atlanta? Great, we got a few of you. I've lived in Atlanta as well before New York. I love Atlanta. But let's just say all of you are going to Atlanta. If you want to understand just how patient you really aren't, try driving 75 at rush hour. You'll figure it out pretty quickly. Now, if you're in Los Angeles, try driving the 405, not at rush hour, but really any time of day, and you'll figure it out pretty quickly, right? Now, if you're in Chicago, become a Chicago Cubs fan, right? You'll learn pretty quickly just how patient you really are. If you're in Seattle and you're fair-skinned like me, just head for the beach for that tan you always wanted. When in Nashville, search for a restaurant, I dare you, that doesn't smother everything in gravy. In New York, head to Madison Square Park on a Saturday in July around noon for lunch at Shake Shack. And if you're in Tulsa, let's land the plane here, head to the drive-thru at Chick-fil-A on Monday around noon because all of those people in line have Sunday Chick-fil-A withdrawal, right? <laughs> They're just saying like through their tongue shaking vigorously at the wheel, spicy chicken combo sweet tea. That's what I'm longing for, right? So you can turn back to the person on your right and say, you know what he's talking about. <laughs> now, let's get biblical here. What does patience mean? What is Paul getting at? What does he have in mind when casting this vision for us? Because this is our vision. We're the church. This is something that we take responsibility to live into 
in these texts. The Greek word here is makrothumia. And makrothumia is this term that means forbearance and long-suffering, self-restraint before action. Let me say that again. Self-restraint before action. Does that describe you? For those of you that are married, would your, would your spouse say, oh, self-restraint before action, Jerry nailed it, right? <laughs> like that's a really challenging thing. Now, there are these other words in the New Testament for patience as well, but this one is different. This one's used rarely, and the other words that are used, which are more common for patience, these other words that we won't talk about today, because Paul's not talking about them in Galatians 5, but they refer to being patient, enduring situations, enduring circumstances, traffic, DMV, Verizon, et cetera, et cetera. But this verb, the way Paul is talking about, excuse me, this way of being, of patient, the makrothumia version, the brand of patient, patience, isn't about our attitude toward things and situations. This particular unique word Paul uses here strictly refers to how we respond to people, how we engage the other, people who challenge us, people who annoy us, people who stand in the way and that we perceive are against us. I think what Paul wants to say is we have to take seriously the way we engage people, people we meet, people that are our neighbors, people we work with, people. In other words, you come to a place in your spiritual walk where you learn that there is no such thing as a privatized Christianity. That eventually, if you follow Jesus long enough, which means day two, you realize that your spirituality is designed to be generative. It's designed to impinge upon the world. That your faith is meant eventually to spill into the public square and to be good news for those who encounter I want to pull up an image behind me. It's the image of a tree. I, I love this sort of season we've been in in New York because um, summers are not as long here and there. And so talking about fruit is really helpful because um, we don't get fruit a lot. And I, I love this image of this apple tree. And what I love about it is I think when we think about this idea of spiritual fruits, I think we think that we're prone to think of this beautiful tree that's a, a metaphor for our lives that Paul gives us a vision for here. And we think, yeah, I want to look like that metaphorically. Like, I want my life to be beautiful. I want my life to, for people to say, that is a person of joy. Sandra is a person of, of peace. And man, Louis, that guy is so good at gentleness, it's unbelievable. I think that's what we sort of subconsciously or even consciously long for, a beautiful life. But I just want to say here as a word of caution, it's called fruit of the Spirit. Not so that your life can merely look beautiful with all of this low-hanging fruit, but it's called fruit of the Spirit so that others can begin to pluck the goodness of what God is doing in your life, which at times can become very inconvenient. At times can become very annoying. At times you're just not in a place to be plucked because you're just trying to get to this thing over here and someone's trying to pluck your patience in this moment, right? And what I, what I think we miss in the fruit of the Spirit is this, this idea that beauty, like the beautiful thing God wants to do for us, yes, it is beautiful and it gives God glory and it brings glory to see us being made glorious, but it's made that way that the world can taste and see that God is good through you. 
And that's a beautiful invitation that we have been brought into. That I think the world is starving for people of joy and kindness and patience and peace. Martin Luther once said that the state of sin is man curved in on himself. This idea that we expand, this idea that God has called us to grow until our soil so that others might see the beauty of God through our lives. So I want to tell you two reasons in brief why we seldom find patience, and then I want to lead us two reasons in brief how we begin to cultivate it. The first reason is this. I think we seldom find patience in our world because we live in a world that prioritizes productivity. We live in a world that prioritizes productivity. And in this sort of paradigm, people become objects. And that makes patience quite a challenge in a post-industrial society. Now listen, there's, zero, there's nothing wrong with productivity, but I can tell you this. When productivity becomes the priority of your life, your identity will hang in the balance of what you can achieve, what you can earn, and the goals that you've set for yourself. And when this happens as your main force for living, people become objects and they're placed into two camps, people who promote and serve my agenda and people who don't. And that's a crushing way to be human in the world. And I think Paul wants us to remind us that people are never to be viewed as problems in our way, nor are people these extras in our little movies who live to advance our dreams, right? People are not characters in your little indie film called Life. People are gifts. And when we see them as such, we grow in our capacity to be patient. I've, I've never been able to, to shake this one scene from Matthew. Since I was a Christian at 15, this is a scene that like, sort of hangs in my soul. We all have those sorts of scenes the longer you they live in the Gospels. You have some that are just more meaningful than others for whatever reason, right? And in Matthew, in the first 13 chapters, Jesus is doing primarily two things. He's teaching and he's healing. And he's teaching and he's healing, and he's healing, and then he's teaching. You have this rhythm that Jesus develops that Matthew is writing about how Jesus is doing these things. And then Matthew 14 comes along, and what happens is this cosmic disruption to his rhythm. Something happens, and it's not just that Jesus is teaching healing out here. Something happens within the force of his own soul that causes him to stop, and it disrupts him. Because news reaches him, that John the Baptist, his cousin, has just been beheaded unjustly. A personal thing. And it starts to talk about in 14 what Jesus does as a response. Now, I, I don't know, like, that, that's a big deal. Like, when you think about the, the personality of Jesus and you think about the experiences he had going from teaching and healing, and all of a sudden, the one who was with him in utero in a separate womb and they leapt when they experienced each other, that's a big deal. Did you have that going on with anybody? I don't think so. Jesus and John the Baptist had that thing going on together in each other's mother's wombs. That's huge. So they had been in communication since in utero. That's awesome. So word hits him that he was beheaded. And this is in verse 13 of 14. The text says, now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. Why? Well, to grieve, to process, to ask, why, God? But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion for them and cured their sick. This is a really startling scene for me. 
I mean, it's that moment where something deeply personal has happened to the Messiah, and yet the crowds have no regard for the personal moment Jesus has just entered into, the grieving, right? I mean, interesting case, to say the least. And I hold the classic view of Jesus that he was both fully man, fully God, 100% both. Mystery, can't explain it, don't even try to. I just receive it, and I've experienced that in my life. But I think we tend to view Jesus selectively during certain scenes, and I think we tend to see Jesus as fully God here and maybe less man, that Jesus sort of turns into his like transformer divine moment here, and the kind of flesh side gets suppressed a little bit of Jesus' man, right? And we think, well, of course he had compassion. He's God, right? And I think amidst the news that pierces his heart, what's so moving about this is that Jesus never stops seeing the crowds for what they are, they're people. In fact, they never, the crowds never seem to become a what to Jesus. They always remain a who, right? Like there's something about crowds, it's such a crass term in general. It, it makes a, a people group of individuals, comprised of individuals, a faceless mass of st- statistic, right? There's nothing unique about it anymore. It's just a blob of humanity. And I think Matthew is using this sort of language to prove a point that the crowds come up and we're, we're tempted to see the crowds, the faceless mass. And I think what's fascinating about Jesus is that time and again, he doesn't see a crowd, but he sees people with stories and stress. Jesus doesn't see a crowd, but people with dreams and conflicts. That Jesus doesn't see a crowd, but people with families in cancer, in leprosy. And if the letter of Colossians is right, that Jesus reveals to us the fullness of God in human form, that what we see in Jesus, we know about God now. If, if that is true, amidst all of the opinions and debate as to who God is, who God isn't, we have to add near the top of the list that God is patient. I mean, you see the way Jesus is with the people amidst his own suffering, that God is patient. We see it time and time again in the Psalms. So make no mistake, and here is, here is why I, I bring, draw this all out. Patience is not a throwaway fruit that we sort of get to if we have time. We see from the very beginning, I think it's easy to bury patience deep into the fruit. So love, joy, peace, yeah, yeah, but patience, ah, if I get around to it. Patience, I think, is one of those things that if you get it right, or maybe I should put it like this, if God gets right in you, it can save a marriage. It can create a whole new marriage, quite frankly. It's a way to be with your children. I loved praying the liturgy of our college students. It's a way to engage one another at school. It's a way to engage the world. Patience seems to be a recovery strategy that God has for taking creation back into love. So I want to say about patience that to become patient is to become like God. So may we never see people as objects who merely advance our cause or stand in our way, but may we see the people around us as gifts because God says that's what they truly are. The second thing is this. Within a world that promotes productivity, the second thing is we also live in a world that exalts efficiency. And efficiency makes it very, very difficult to live a life of patience. Now, I'm about to play for you a very peculiar sound. It's a sound that for all of those over over 25 will know very well. 
It's one that will take you back into your past. For some of you, it's going to create a fondness. For others of you, a sense of nostalgia. For others of you, maybe a sense of disdain. And so let's close our eyes together and let's just free ourselves to receive the liturgy of this sound. And I'm going to count down from five and then we're going to enter into this space of music and see what comes up for us. Are you ready? Five, four, three, two, and one. Yes, God, yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Yes, wait, wait, yeah, yeah. yeah. You've got mail. Now, if you're under 25, you're saying to yourself, what are you talking about? But for those of us who are older than 25, like, at one point, these were 12 seconds of divine anticipation, <laughs> waiting for the yellow guy to cross the road, right, to get to the other side through dialogue. Like, those were 12 seconds of amazement. You were just waiting, and you were waiting on the edge of your seat to see who had emailed you. But can you imagine knowing what you know now, returning to such a state of deprivation, right? This was total depravity. If we were to go back, this would be 12 seconds now of agony. That this is the sound of waiting. It's the sound that reminds us just how far we've come in the land of instant gratification. A sound that's a rival to us actually seeing patience as a good thing. We've come so far, the land of instant downloads, the land of ever-expanding territory of bandwidth and seemingly ever-diminishing moments of free time. It's fascinating, the world in which we live. And so I think most of our agitation in life is derived from the reality that we have not yet achieved and received that which we want to attain. And in that sort of paradigm, people become objects to our efficiency, to us needing to get where we want to be. And within a world that promotes productivity, in a world that exalts efficiency as the supreme values to life, I think that possibly in all human history, now more than ever, we need the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. Like, we're not gonna get here on our own. It's going to take participation with none other than God, God's self, to actually begin to counterform all of the ways in which we are being formed throughout the rest of our week. I think it explains in part what appears to be an ever-increasing society of rampant individualism, of what seems to be incessant racism and human exploitation, that it seems to be in some ways galvanized, seems to be growing these things. And so I would just submit humbly this morning that the world needs people of patience who see the other as Jesus did. So how do we cultivate it? How do we even begin to participate with this? I think there are so many things that we could do, practices that would help shape who we are. But two things briefly. The first is this. Do you have a daily habit of widening your lens? Widen your lens. What I mean by that is that your story is important. Your goals are important. Your dreams are important. Your family is important. All of the things that you give your life to, they are so important, they are vital, but at the end of the day, they also fit into a larger narrative of the kingdom of God. 
It is so important for me to situate all of my life, all of my joys, my trials, my struggles, my strains, my triumphs, all of these things within a larger frame of what God is doing in the world. I think it's why, the record, it's why the Gospels, I think, record Jesus doing this over and over again. He's constantly getting away. He's constantly seeking solitude. And I think what he's doing amongst many things is he's remembering the story. He's remembering why he came. He's remembering what this is really all about in the first place. And it situates him in a context where he can once again live into his story within the larger framework of the kingdom of God. And I think one of the practices for me that is so integral to that is reading the Gospels every day. Are you rooted in the story that you claim gives you life? Are you rooted in the life and ministry of Jesus, that it informs how you are in the world, that it's becoming reality for you, that this is the way of Jesus. And though my senses and though my society tells me that this is the way to flourishing, yet I will trust what you are calling me to in this moment. It helps us to widen our lens. The second thing is this, not just to widen our lens, but to sharpen our focus. Super practical, super simple, but sharpening our focus. In other words, have you pegged down what really matters? How often do you remind yourself that people are gifts? For example, if I'm going to pull this image up. If, if, you could, if you could think about life as this sort of image, this sort of, this sort of blur, right? You know, if you're a photographer, if you're in film or video, you know that there are moments where you focus on something and by consequence, other things move into a blur in the background. And I wanna, what I want to suggest is in the society in which we live, we've got all of our focus often wrong. It's inverted. So often, our focus is on these things, whereas these people are blurred. People cease to really matter, and they serve as background to the things that you're really after in life, right? And so I would use this as a metaphor of saying, how often do you take time to really sharpen your focus and to remind yourself on a daily basis, if people matter to God, they better matter to me because that's what it means to get all joined in and intermingled into the kingdom of God with Jesus. I think one of the practices that I find, one of the only practices that I find that really, really helps me with this is praying for people by name. You know, those people that annoy you? It's like, God, Julie is such a problem. John is so annoying. Would you, would you change him for me, right? <laughs> but I think often when we move into that, that's like stage one, but if you press into it, what you start to realize in your prayer life is it becomes like, God, would you change John for me to God, what is John going through? Would you give me revelation about what he's experiencing perhaps at home where I'm just experiencing sort of the symptoms of a deeper thing where I can actually have compassion on this guy because he's a single dad, right? I can have compassion on this woman because she's now a widow from the man she loved. Like all of these things that are under the glacier, under the water. And we just experience the symptoms of most people that we rub shoulders with. But there's something about intercession of naming the people you annoy you, not that they would change for your convenience, but that you would have some sort of impartation into their life. Say, God, you've rubbed shoulders me with this person. What do you have for me for them? How can I bless them? 
How can I pray over them? Not condescendingly, but truly with you for them. People are not objects or obstacles. And to become like Jesus is to see the crowd, not for their annoyance, but for the beautiful image of God that they are. And so we close with this verse. I just want us to sit into this for a moment before the Eucharist. And then this prayer at the end, I'm just gonna read this over us. Just invite you to just receive the text. Life, the spirit, scriptures, when we allow the spirit into it, it just brings life to us. Colossians 1 says, lead lives worthy of the Lord. And so what does that look like? May you endure everything with patience while joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share the inheritance of the saints in light. We talk about a benediction in the middle of the letter saying, church, may you lead lives worthy. Endure everything with patience. Joyfully give thanks to the Father who's enabled you to share in the inheritance of the saints in life. So let's just, just gonna ask the musicians to come and just underscore just for a moment. And just wanna reflect on this prayer and just allow it to seep into the soil, to till the garden of your soul, to create a culture in you where patience becomes possible, where joy and peace and love and gentleness and self-control, all these things can become possible. The verse or the prayer might go something like this. God, widen my lens to notice your kingdom. Sharpen my focus to love your people. Let's just take two minutes and just repeat that phrase, repeat that prayer several times. Just till the soil, till the soil of your soul. Say, God, widen my lens to notice your kingdom. Sharpen my focus to love your people. Thanks be to God. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services at 5 p.m. on Saturday, 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. on Sundays. And if you would like more information on who we are and what we're about here at Sanctuary or to give online, please visit our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com or you can download our mobile app from the App Store or Google Play. We hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.